Hendry Bibles this morning, I'd like to ask you to open with me to the 55th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, we're going to be looking at this chapter today as well as next Lord's Day. Originally, I planned to speak on one verse, and that's a verse that we're very familiar with, which Isaiah 55 verse 8, where my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. But as I was looking at that verse, I wanted to study the chapter first so that I could uh, sort of put the verse in its context. And the, deep, the deeper I dug into the chapter, the more I realized I want to talk about the entire chapter. So that's what I'm going to do this morning and next Lord's Day. And I want to title the lesson, Seek the Lord. Isaiah chapter 55, Seek the Lord. If you're familiar with the uh, Old Testament, and specifically the book of Isaiah, you know at this point in Isaiah's prophecy, we're looking to the future from the perspective of the time in which it was written. And what I mean by that is that Isaiah spoke to the Israelites. He was warning them of the judgment to come absent their forgiveness or, or their repentance that would lead to their forgiveness but also was looking beyond a period of judgment which would take place as the result of what's referred to as the Babylonian captivity. Again, if you know the Old Testament, you know that um, God chose the people to be his nation, and that was the nation of Israel. And that was the first of the three promises that God made to Abraham. He told Abraham he would make of his seed a great nation. That nation would be the nation of Israel, he then told Abraham that he would give that nation a land in which to dwell. And that would be the land of promise or the land of Canaan. And so when Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, of course, they sent in the spies, and Ken came back with an evil report, he came back with a good report, Joshua and Caleb, and as a result of their unfaithfulness, they were denied entrance, that generation, into the promised land. So there was the 40-year period of wilderness wandering, followed by their taking possession. Joshua and Caleb were the only two of that generation who were allowed to enter the promised land. And then we see a period of judgment, which was followed by the period that's referred to as the United Kingdom. And that was first Saul, and then David, and then David's son Solomon. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And both kingdoms digressed, more so in the north, but ultimately they both digressed from, from the ways of God, and the northern kingdom was taken into Assyrian captivity. Some years later, about 150 years later, the, the southern kingdom was taken into Babylonian captivity. So that, that brings us up to the message of, of Isaiah. There would be a righteous remnant that would return from captivity. So after the Babylonian exile, there would be a righteous remnant, some of whom, I should say, would return from the captivity, and they'd go back to Jerusalem. And so what would be yet to be fulfilled of those three promises to Abraham at that point would be the seed promise. God told Abraham, through your seed, I would 
raise up a great nation. I'd give that nation a land in which to dwell, and then all nations would be blessed through that seed, and that seed would be Christ. So the latter part of the book of Isaiah is looking forward to that time of restoration. You, you know if, if you've uh, ever used Isaiah chapter 53 to prepare your mind for the Lord's Supper. That particular chapter in Isaiah's prophecy is about the suffering servant. It's about the Messiah. It, it was that chapter that the Ethiopian was reading, the Ethiopian eunuch, as he returned from Jerusalem to worship. And then Philip went up and joined the chariot and preached from that passage about Jesus. So it's about Christ. It's a messianic uh, prophecy. And then chapter 54 and chapter 55 of the book, book of Isaiah are essentially the same. And I know that's saying a lot by way of introduction. But it, it helps us to, to understand as we come into that 55th chapter what the prophet is speaking about. He's, he's speaking about a time when men would seek the Lord. And they would find God not through the keeping of the commandments of the old Mosaic law, but they would find God through Jesus. Jesus would prepare the way so that reconciliation between man and God would be possible. But this 55th chapter, when we look at that verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, declares the Lord, we, we appropriately make application of that statement when we're having religious discussions. People will say, well, I think this, I think that, as if we're going to bring God down to our level and put our thoughts right beside God's thoughts. And the prophet, speaking for God, says, that's not possible because your thoughts are not God's thoughts. And then he says in verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God speaking to the prophets, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You cannot allow yourself to become the standard. It is not your opinion. It is not the opinions of men that serve as the pathway to God. God has to reveal to us his mind. And in his mind, we find how it is possible to seek God. That brings us to Isaiah 55 and verse 6. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7 this morning, and then next Lord's Day, we're going to pick up with verse 8 and go through the end of the chapter. Verse 8 through the end of the chapter explains to us why we should seek the Lord. But this morning, I want us to look at the statement first where he challenges, and I believe this is a challenge to us. It was a challenge to them. They were to be looking forward to the eye of faith, to the time when, when the Messiah would come. But it's a challenge to us to seek the Lord. It is an invitation that is presented to us to seek God. Now, you'll notice, he says, while he may be found. And then he says, call upon him, which is synonymous with seeking the Lord. Call upon him while he is near. So that begs the question, when is it going to be the case that the Lord may not be found? When is it going to be the case that the Lord is not near. Well, that time for all men 
will be while they have the breath of life. Once your life is over, once you reach the end of life's journey, once you pass from this life, then the door of opportunity to seek God, if you have not done so, that door will close. We are to seek the Lord while he may be found. We are to call upon him while he is near. I want you to think about whenever we speak the gospel, whenever we encourage someone to become a child of God, what is it that we are doing? Whenever we extend the invitation, what is it that we're doing? Our objective is not to convert people to the church. Our objective is not to convert people to our religion. We're not turning people toward a doctrine. The invitation that we extend, whenever we preach the gospel, this this statement, seek the Lord. When you look at it at the most fundamental level, what God is asking is, seek me. Look for me. God wants a relationship with his creation. God wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to understand that the way you have that relationship, it begins with a search. Whenever we begin to engage in the, the act of evangelism, we need to keep in mind that what we are looking for is looking. What we are seeking is seekers. We are seeking people who are seeking God. Now notice the beautiful language that is used here in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 5, which really is the invitation. Ho, he begins... Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. There is something within you that is missing. And the invitation is, come to God and it will be satisfied. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Now when is the last time you bought something without money? And yet that's what he says to you. If you have no money, come and buy this. Well, what he's telling us is, is that salvation is a gift. The invitation to seek God is a free gift. You can't earn this. You can't buy your way into heaven. The price was paid when Jesus died on the cross. But what God is offering to those who would seek him is satisfaction. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Now think about that, that series of questions. Well, it, it reminds me of what, what Jesus told his disciples, those who were following him after he fed the multitudes, they came back because they ate the loaves and they were fulfilled. And Jesus said, you're not seeking me. You're, you're seeking food. Don't labor for the food which perishes. And the prophet is asking the same question, or God is asking the same question through the prophet. Why do you spend so much of your life 
Why do you spend so much of your time and your energy pursuing those things which do not satisfy? I'm giving you the water of life. I'm giving you the bread of life. You need to pursue this. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching in Pisidian Antioch, he quotes that, that passage. So it is a messianic statement, this, this idea of the faithful mercy shown to David. It is the blessing that would come through the Messiah. And then he says in verse 4, Behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. And I don't think that's a reference to David so much as it would be the one who would come after David, and that would be the Messiah. Jesus would be the witness. He would give faithful testimony. He would be the leader. He would be the shepherd. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you will, will not run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And again, all of this is just an invitation. It's an invitation to seek God. We're going to be extending an invitation later this morning for those who have not obeyed the gospel to do so. And I want you to realize that whenever that invitation song is sung, this is what God is looking for. He's looking for those who are looking for him. In Acts 17, when Paul was preaching to the, Athenian, the Athenians on Mars Hill, he said in Acts 17 and verse 26 in reference to God that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having de uh, determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. This is why you were created. If you do not seek God, you have failed in the purpose for which God made you, that they would seek God. But notice what he says, if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Remember what the prophet said, what God said to the prophet, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Well, now he is near. God has come near in the form of Jesus Christ, and he is seeking those who are seeking him. But there's a requirement. There's a requirement that is stated here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Now the wicked and the unrighteous are the same. So we are not only to be seeking God, we are not only to be turning to Him, but in turning to God, we're turning away from something else. We're turning away here from our way. It was stated earlier that there is only one way to Christ. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. But the wicked are to forsake their way, and the unrighteous are to forsake their thoughts. Again, the path to fellowship with God is not found in your way. It's not found in my way. 
It's not found in your thoughts. It's not found in my thoughts. It's not a matter of how I think. It's not a matter of how you think. We cannot and we should not ever attempt to elevate our thoughts to the point at which we bring God's thoughts down to our own. Because that is not the path to salvation. Why would I forsake my way? Why would I forsake my thoughts? Well, look at chapter 59 and notice in verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I should forsake my way. I should forsake my thoughts because it is my way, it is my thoughts that has produced the iniquity, the sin, the transgression in my life that has resulted in separation between me and God. And this is true of all mankind. Everyone who has reached the age of accountability, it can be said of them as it is said of them in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God. That's why you should forsake your way. What did your way do? All your way did was cause you to be separated from God. All your way did is cause you to fall short. Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles fail. Romans chapter 2, the moral Gentiles fail. Romans chapter 3, the Jew fail. They all, in their efforts, in their futile ways, their darkened understanding, even in their religion, they were abysmal failures and fell short of God's glory. And it is for that reason, if you're going to seek God, you're going to have to turn away. You're going to have to be crucified. You're going to have to crucify the flesh. You cannot be conformed to this world. You cannot be a friend of this world because in so doing, you'll make yourself an enemy of God. It'll happen every time. The invitation is to seek God and the requirement is to forsake your way and your thoughts. The call in this particular passage is to return. It's to return. Well, when I think about returning, I think about going back to a place that I've been before. I don't return to a place I've never been. I might go to a place that I've never been, but I do not return to a place I've never been. And what this speaks of is not as the Calvinist would lead us to believe that we're born in sin. No, we're born, we're born pure. We're, we're, we're born innocent. But at some point in life, and we don't know when this happens, it happens, I'm sure, at different ages for different people. But at some point, we sin. We fall short of the mark. We know the difference between right and wrong, and we do wrong. And we do it even though we know it's wrong. We know it's something we shouldn't do, but we do it anyway. And when we do it, 
we lose what we have. We lose the fellowship that was ours before we reached the age of accountability and gave in and sinned. Let him return to the Lord. That means to repent. That means that I look at my life, I look at the way, I look at my ways, I look at my thoughts, and I say, this is not worth it. I'm ready to go back home. We speak of death as going home. Well, we go home before we die. The, the parable of the prodigal son teaches us that. We are that prodigal son who left the father. And, and God is running and he is wanting to meet meet us. But we gotta, we got to return. we got to go back home. If we're going to seek God, we've got to turn away from that sinful lifestyle. And we've got to come home. We've got to come back to God. And that's what it means to repent. In Mark chapter 1, when, when John the Immerser, John the Baptist, began his public ministry, he was the one who was sent as the messenger ahead of Christ who would prepare his way. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness who would make ready the way of the Lord to make his path straight. And we see in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4 that John appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism of change. And you read and you study John's ministry. And that was his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what you have to turn away from. You cannot find God through your way. You cannot find God through your thoughts. And then Jesus' message was the same. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, as Jesus began his ministry, preaching the gospel, the Bible says, that he said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a message of repentance. It's a message of change. And it's not that which is beyond our, our, our ability to, to either do or to comprehend. It is within our grasp to make these changes. We, we have the example in Acts, the second chapter, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and he convinced those Jews present that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. When they heard it, they were pierced to the heart. Why were they pierced to the heart? It's because they knew their sin. They knew their sin and they knew that they had to be forgiven of that sin. They knew that they had been separated from God by their sin and they were seeking the Lord because they believed that calling upon His name was the path to eternal life. And when they were pierced to the heart, they asked the question, what shall we do? And Peter answered that question. Repent. Repent. Let him return to the Lord. Repent. And then in Peter's second sermon in chapter 3 and verse 19, he restated basically the same thing, but he used a little bit different terminology. Acts 3 and verse 19, therefore repent, look at it, and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you're seeking God, you must seek Him in response to His invitation. There is the invitation. There is the requirement to forsake your ways, to forsake your thoughts, but then to come back home, to return as did the prodigal son. 
to have that fellowship with God. And then finally, we see the promise. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Restudying this has helped me to see that whenever I present the gospel, whenever I present the invitation, it, it can become so familiar to me, it can become so familiar familiar to you that it, it loses its, its real meaning. It, it loses its, its luster, if you will. We, we speak of the, the five steps. You have to hear, you have to believe, confess, repent, and then be baptized to have your, your sins washed away. Those are the five steps. And if you'll take those five steps, you can become a Christian. Well, again, oh, that's true. All of that's true. But it's not just a formula. You know, it's not math class. It's not one plus one equal two every time. Even though it is a formula, and it is a requirement, forgiveness is the fulfillment of a promise. And the language of Isaiah 55 and verse 7 adds meaning to that. Who will have compassion? When someone obeys the gospel, what we are witnessing through the eyes of faith is the compassion of God. And what we are witnessing through the eyes of faith is an abundance of pardon, an abundance of forgiveness. The book, the book of Isaiah began with this, this thought in chapter 1. You'll notice in verse 18, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, God speaking to the prophet, come now and let us reason together says the Lord. Let's sit down at the table. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like this. Your, your soul has been marred by sin. It has been stained. It has been bloody. It has been defied. But the promise to those who will seek the Lord is that through the compassion and the abundance of God's willing to pardon, you can be forgiven. In chapter 54 of the book of Isaiah, one chapter removed from the chapter that we're looking at, in verse 8, God, again, states in regards to the judgment that he would bring against his people. He says in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting love and kindness, I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord, says the Lord your Redeemer. But this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the, the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. 
and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on you. In chapter 43 of the book of Isaiah, in verse 25, Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is the only one who is capable of forgetting what you have done. There are people in your life, perhaps you've transgressed against them in their presence. It's known and it'll never be forgotten. Maybe forgiven, but never forgotten. God said, I'm not going to bring them up. I'm not going to hold them against you. You don't have to be concerned about being forgiven. And then at some point in your life, I'm going to drag this dirt out of your closet, and I'm going to remind you of what you did. No. He will abundantly pardon. A lot more to Isaiah 55 than verse 8. So we've seen then that in seeking the Lord, it's an invitation with a requirement. It's safe, your way, your thoughts. It's a call to repent, to return. And then it's a promise. We're going to go to God now in prayer. And next Lord's Day, we'll continue looking at Isaiah 55. We'll answer the question why? See. Go to God now in prayer.